0: On the podcast this week are three interviews I recorded at the 7th Annual National Heirloom Expo in Santa Rosa in the first week of September 2017. The organizers of the expo, Baker Creek Seeds, hold a press conference in the midst of the fair, and that gave me a chance to, uh, shall we say, corner some really interesting folks, including a Hawaiian squash farmer and a world-renowned Australian chef. Before we get to the interviews, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers Dan F, Heather E, Lynn G, K, Scott G, Kellyan, Stephanie L, Erica R, Kelton M, Kyle P, Nicholas H, Garden Fork, and supporters Michael W, Dutch Girl, and Johan. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. First up is Anna Peach of Squash and Awe Farm on the big island of Hawaii. So Anna, why don't you say who you are and, and where you live? Okay,
1: my name is Anna Peach and I live in Waimea on Hawaii Island.
0: And you grow squash there. What's it like to grow on in Hawaii? Uh,
1: Hawaii has a very mild climate and generally squash enjoys a climate that gets uh, goes from cold to very hot to cold again. Uh, So squash, the upside of squash in Hawaii is that I can uh, grow perennial plants that will last a year and a half, two years. The downside is that because we import close to 90% of our crops, we've also imported a lot of pests and diseases from around the world. So we've imported some major squash pests, um, but I'm finding through heirlooms, heirloom varieties, as well as land races that have... Uh, been in Hawaii for probably at least 200 years. I've found lots of solutions, and I'm now getting them back into the market commercially.
0: And uh, you're very resourceful too. You're on an island, so um, how do you fertilize your plants? How do you keep them going without importing a lot of stuff from the mainland?
1: Right. Well. That's right. Uh, So many do rely on importing, and I decided because of our importing, I'd look at what we throw away. And of course, cardboard is something when you're importing a lot to a place, we have an excess amount of cardboard. So I I started looking into lasagna gardening, also known as sheet mulching, no-till methods. And I've just scaled it up to, I I farmed two quarter acre parcels, and I decided to uh, work with just areas where there had been extreme wind erosion to see what i could do with those parcels they weren't prime soil areas uh... so there was a lot of exposed rock and the sheet mulching has been really successful combined with i I plant a lot of pigeon pea for nitrogen fixing plants use that as a companion i work with chefs i reclaim both green waste as well as their Uh, Fish scrap because of course in the Hawaiian Islands. We have a lot of beautiful ahi that are caught which is our tuna so that's all made into a a Fermented fertilizer a fish emulsion fish fertilizer, which is wonderful for a a heavy feeding plant like uh, Any of them like squash corn um, Chili peppers also love fish emulsion, so it's allowed me to farm very uh, like to maximize my yield in a very small parcel, while at the same time keeping my costs close to zero.
0: Is the fish method a Polynesian method? Is that a traditional method in the islands? Where did you learn uh, that that particular method?
1: It, uh, I actually first heard about it because it was used in combination uh, with the three sisters method in Native Hawaiian. Uh, I'm sorry, Native American planting. Uh, I just recently went to Sicily last year, and I found that the Sicilian fishermen used to also use that method. My ancestors uh, come from Ireland. They were islanders as well off the coast of Ireland, and they collected both seaweed, which we call limu in Hawaii. Uh, They collected both seaweed and they would use fish scrap there too. So I really think it's a global method of, really, it's thriftiness. uh, And... Most farmers that understand soil, they know that fish is one of the best resources you can have, and it, it's underutilized in many communities.
0: I know you were also interested in resiliency. During your talk, you talked about how, um, how, how many days there are if uh, somehow the airplanes get cut off to the, to the islands. Um, what are you doing in terms of resiliency in the community, and what are your thoughts about uh, resiliency in, in Hawaii, but also in other places, too?
1: That's right. Um, if we had both a longshoreman strike as well as an airline strike, and I think we've been close to having a double strike in those two areas twice in the last five years, we only really have enough for the estimate four to six days. Uh, it's a statistic that I find staggering, but um, what I try to do is encourage people to plant all kinds of edibles that are... How can I say? One, they're perennials. Things that thrive in Hawaii's mild climate. Things like chayote, which is extremely high in vitamin C. I use that as windbreaks, and I encourage other people to do it, too. Ironically, we import almost all of our chayote, which we call pipinola. It's something like 97%, but yet it grows like a weed there. And it is edible from the the end tips all the way down to, of course, it puts out these beautiful, uh, it's in the edible gourd family, so it puts out wonderful fruits that can be fermented Uh, you can make and that even increases the vitamin c level higher Uh, some of the the squash that i'm breeding i've distributed the seeds to over 200 growers around the state Uh, with some training i did some online training with them so that they could help their communities as well because some of these plants that have adapted to hawaii banana trees for example too are a good one to plant you can continue with your life as it is and do minimal gardening with them. And that's the key because we're so busy commuting to our jobs that people have stopped doing the backyard gardening. So even if you grow a small percentage of your food, allow some beans to crawl up your banana trees, a few chayote plants, and a squash plant, it's amazing how much you can produce year-round for your family. And I'm just trying to encourage that way of thinking so that we're not caught out one day.
0: Where did you grow up, actually? You didn't grow up on the islands, right?
1: No, uh, my family lived in Wisconsin, and they continue to live there, I should say. Um, Yeah, so southern Wisconsin, and uh, my grandfather used to dip his hand into the soil, and it would go up to the elbow, and he'd say, that's poor soil. And now in Hawaii, where I'm, I'm working with very exposed, rocky areas, Uh, it's much different. But one thing that I, I learned from my grandfather is that he made sure to always walk the field every single day. And he would grab a handful of soil and smell it. And really what he's detecting was the microbes. And it turns out with me and my fermentation, I'm really a microbe farmer. I do a lot of work with collecting microbes from the area, infusing them like bokashi and and creating methods where I'm encouraging the microbes. And then that, of course, encourages everything down the line, including uh, a healthier, more vigorous plant, uh, increasing the worm population. All of the other things that I need starts at that very tiny foundation of microbes. So,
0: What else have you learned in, in Hawaii in terms of what what's different about it than growing things here in California or other places in the, in the continental U.S.?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges is definitely the pests because we have at least four varieties of the tropical fruit flies, including medfly, and we have them year-round in all seasons. We have melon fly as well. That's one of the biggest challenges. I think another challenge challenges are just distribution channels as well once you grow it what do you do with it we've set up a system that's based completely on importing so it is hard to kind of I always say infiltrate because I feel like it is a strategic act to get into the markets again and I chose because I enjoy cooking and taking culinary classes I decided that the best way is to become a, an advisor with the chefs so that I became a specialist and a trusted specialist as well as a provi- like a food provider. So that I wasn't simply taking their time. That I was educating, I come in and I'll, I'll teach their whole staff and bring in beautiful varieties and, and talk about the culinary history of different regions, whether it be in Thailand or Italy, and how very specific vegetables were grown for specific recipes. Now we've gotten used to like eggplant number 4657 and so many of these young chefs are graduating out of culinary school with that as their only experience with say an eggplant. And what I'm trying to do is open their their eyes to the possibilities because that also is going to encourage their passion, that's they love food, their creativity as well.
0: Great. So thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: Next up is Aspen Madrone. Who represents Mycopia mushrooms as well as Bay Area Green Tours.
2: My name is Aspen Madrone, and I work with Mycopia Gourmet Mushrooms as well as Bay Area Green Tours, a nonprofit that provides sustainability tours.
0: Tell me about Mycopia Mushrooms.
2: We're a local farm here in Sebastopol. We've been here for forty years, and we produce seven varieties of specialty mushrooms.
0: So how do you produce mushrooms? That's something I've always wondered about.
2: We grow them on a substrate, which is basically sawdust, in these reusable plastic jars. And we inoculate them with spawn, which creates the mycelium. Base, and then the fruiting body of it is the mushroom that comes up.
0: Do you uh, work with your own spawn or do you purchase it somewhere? How, do, how does that work? That's the part that's always intimidated me about, about growing mushrooms myself. So walk, maybe walk me through the process of, of farming mushrooms and maybe how, because this podcast is mostly about home gardeners and things like that. Uh, so are there ways that people at home can do something similar to what, what you do?
2: Yeah, so for us, we um, have a mycologist that is creating the spawn from other um, mycelium spawn and then we inoculate the jars. But we do sell plugs uh, of the spawn, so you could put them in um, and grow them at home yourself, so it's mycopia.com. Um, and you'd be able to do that as well as um, other varieties. We, d- we don't do shiitakes, but that's a very common and popular one for home gardeners to do, and that grows on wood. Um, so you bring these plugs and then you put it in the wood and then it would create the fruiting bodies.
0: And I assume the, the environment is temperature controlled indoors, is that how, it, how you grow? What, it, what does it look like?
2: Yeah, we grow inside and it's vertical farming. We use very little water or one of the lowest water crops, and it is climate controlled, and it depends on the variety of mushroom. Um, Some of them have different temperature requirements. Most, all of them are considered forest mushrooms, something you'd find on a rotting log or something like that. And uh, so we grow them up, and it takes between 30 and 90 days, depending on the variety, before we can harvest them for you to enjoy.
0: And you also do tours of the Bay Area, is that correct? Uh, What's the name of that? And, And tell me a little bit about what those tours are like.
2: Yeah, I work with Bay Area Green Tours, and it's a nonprofit that brings um, sustainability into action. And we bring school groups as well as companies. Um, Most recently, I'll be doing a tour for LinkedIn food group, and they are very um, advocates for uh, farm-fresh food in their cafeteria and restaurants, and so they want to come out and see where it's grown. And so we're going to take them to Palaluma and teach them about soil health and the seed bank, but we will cater a tour to anyone that's interested. Um, you can just shoot us an email at info at
0: Cool. And what's the website for the mushroom farm?
2: Yeah, that's mycopia.com. It's www.mycopia.com.
0: There we go. So, great. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much, and have a great day.
0: Our last interview is with Peter Gilmore, who is the executive chef at Quay and at Benelong in the Sydney Opera House. He spoke at the expo, but I caught up with him while he was scouting out some rare varieties of vegetables and fruits. So
3: it's Chef Peter Gilmore, is that correct? That's correct. And all the way
0: from Sydney? Sydney, and What brings you down here?
3: Well, um, basically, I, I was invited to come and speak uh, at the event here um, by the guys at Bakers Creek, and um, I, you know actually saw this um, festival uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I looked it up online and thought, I must get there one day. So it was just perfect sort of uh, opportunity to come out and have a look and you know, spend a week or so in California, have a look around. And yeah, it's great.
0: I hear you're very particular about where your food comes from and your, your kitchen. Uh, you want to say something about how you work with farmers?
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah, look, um, one one thing I started doing about 10 years ago, was I actually discovered growing myself. Um, and I really sort of got hooked on the, the whole process. And uh, and then I started to realize how much incredible variety was out there and all the heirlooms. Um, so then, you know, I realized that, you know, a lot of conventional farmers in Australia weren't growing those sort of Source of things and I had to find some people to work with uh, and one of the things I did was um, I went out and looked for small-scale organic farmers and I started then sort of working with them and almost like in a bespoke sort of way I would ask them to grow something for a specific dish in the restaurant and I'd commit to a, a particular number each week and, uh, and that's sort of how it evolved.
0: Is there something you're working with right now that you're particularly excited about?
3: Oh, you know, there's always, always great stuff. I mean, there's... Um I just saw this alligator squash over there that looks pretty amazing. I wouldn't mind growing that next year. Um, you know, we grow all sorts of vegetables, a lot of Italian heirlooms, lots of different types of eggplants. Um, you know, I really, I really love, you know, a lot of the traditional Japanese vegetables too, you know, the kabu turnips and, um, you know, the different varieties of um, eggplant from Japan as well. So there's, there's stuff on the go all the time.
0: I saw you looking at the corn very carefully. Was yeah. there, what were you doing over there?
3: Oh, just checking out some of the corn from Peru. Um, and just, uh, I mean, it blows your mind, really, the amount of variety. And, um, you know, and to think that, you know, all of this started from uh, a single wild plant that was then cultivated by man into all these different incredible forms. You know, it just, it, it, it is mind-blowing, to be honest. Well,
0: well thank you so much, chef. Yeah. I want to let, you, let nice. you go here and look around some more. Okay. Thank you. Cheers. You can find out more about Anna Peach's work on her website squashandaw.com. You can find Mycopia Mushrooms at mycopia.com and Bay Area Green Tours at org. If you'd like to see Chef Gilmore in action, I've embedded a video in the show notes for this episode. With the exception of last year's National Heirloom Expo, I've been to all of them. If you enjoy this podcast, you might consider attending the Expo next year. The expo itself consists of a large exhibitor's hall, a huge display of heirloom, vegetables, and fruits, and lots of free lectures. There's also a livestock hall and live music. It's kind of like a county fair without the dumb rides and horrible deep-fried food. While the expo's slightly scaled back from the first few years, it's still an inexpensive and great way to get a lot of information about heirloom vegetables, fruits, and flowers. It's also walking distance from legendary plant breeder Luther Burbank's house, which is also well worth a visit. And a tip, there's a nice campground in the middle of Santa Rosa called Spring Lake. That's where I've stayed along with my friend Dale for the past few years. Thank you, by the way, Dale, for all your help. And thanks again to our Patreon subscribers for supporting this podcast. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple Podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.